Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is, my name is Cough. My name is Clearthroat. No, my name is Toby Miller. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Amalia Leguizamo, Associate Professor of Sociology at Tulane University. Oh, yeah, groovy. No, Prof. Leguizamon, it's really a, a great honor to have you here. Thank you very much. Your work. As Thank you, you for inviting me. Oh, your work, as you know, has inspired me for, I guess, the six years we've known one another and when I started reading it. It's almost seven years, probably is seven years since we met. And only our hairstyles have changed, right? <laughs> so tell, tell us what you've been thinking about these days, what's preoccupying you, what's interesting you, what's dynamizing you right now? Uh, yeah, so things that have been like taking my attention lately are, of course, issues around climate change. Um, for once, because I am an environmental sociologist, so the environment is very much part of what my work. Also, because I do live in New Orleans and uh, disasters and extreme weather events are part of our everyday life. Um, so I have been um, thinking a lot about the climate crisis, thinking a lot about how sociology engages with studying the climate crisis, how much or actually how little sociologists think about the environment, um, um, thinking a lot about how sociology is very much preoccupied with problems. Uh, and this is something I have been doing as a sociologist, studying problems, Um but I have been thinking more and more into what is our role um, to craft solutions. And I'm still struggling with what does it mean because I don't want to think about like simplified solutions, but more about, okay, what is it that we can do? I mean, certainly sociology is, is great at teasing out all the political, economic, cultural um, implications, right? Or the processes that explains why the world is in the dire state in which we're in, particularly as it pertains to the climate crisis. But then it's like, okay, so what do we do? What do we do with that? So um, I have been thinking more and more into, um, yeah, like what, not, not only like how the climate crisis is created, which is related to my work, related to issues around extractivism in Latin America. So the destruction of natural resources, like the exploitation of nature, um, for profit, um, but also thinking into okay, what's next now? Now, what do we do? And I guess two questions come from that. The first one is to ask you this: given that there's a long and pretty distinguished history of the sociology of science that goes back at least to Robert Merton, yeah, that's developed in lots of ways in intersection with anthropology, through to the kind of work associated with Bruno Latour and others in the 1990s. How come it's really only Latour and some of his disciples and a few US sociologists on the left who have really grasped this issue of the environment? You mentioned in your first remarks that this has been something of a disappointment to you. Um, I have to... First to say that Latour is not part of, as, as a uh, properly trained American sociologist training the American Academy, we don't read much of the Europeans. So <laughs> I'm not going, 
I don't I I don't know how much Latour like, got into this. Uh, and certainly maybe this is one of the reasons why American sociologists are not so concerned about the environment. Uh, on the other side, there is a strong tradition of environmental sociology here in the United States, which is unique and very interesting now um, um, informing both uh, theoretical and empirical research in the United, in, in Europe and in Latin America. So this is quite interesting. Um, as to your question of why they, yeah, I'm sorry, I lost the question. Like, well, why is it that? I, I, sorry. I think you, yeah. you just told us that actually there is quite a lot of interest in terms of yeah. sociology with application in Europe and Latin America. But I think in your opening remarks, you said that there wasn't enough. And I guess what, yeah. what you're implying is that there is a strong element of environmental sociology, absolutely true, but that it's not filtered into mainstream teaching and research. Yes, the certainly. textbook of Sociology 101 is unlikely to have much on the environment. Is that Yes. Right? Yes, that is, that is correct. And that's something that more uh, sociologists are starting to be aware. I mean, in the last two years, probably, there have been a, at least three or four um, uh, uh, pieces in, like, American Review of Sociology, American Journal of Sociology, right, which are the main uh, journals for the discipline that mm. are bringing this to the forefront. Uh, it, this, uh, for sociology in general, right, why is it that sociology in general is not concerned about the environment or how is it that we can think about the climate crisis or or trying to bring environmental sociology not 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 as a subfield, right, but something that all of us are actually thinking in many ways, right? Like, I mean, if you think even um, classic urban sociology as uh, from the Chicago school, I mean, the issues around the city, housing, poverty, all those things have always been related to um, thinking about the environment in that sense. But how do we bring it in? I mean, lots of people, I mean, maybe not lots of people, some people, and this is something that I'm thinking more, is uh, related to the ways in which are related uh, to the ways in which the discipline emerged, right? Like, what were the issues of concern when the discipline emerged? And the dis sociology as a discipline was uh, very much um, a discipline that was inspired by the Industrial Revolution, by the urbanization of Europe, right? By the deepest, deepest sensation, right? Like the 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 uh, the the growth of the city, right? The growth of the 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 merchants of of um, the salaried worker, right, like wage workers, right, like he's trying to move away from tradition. I mean, this is classic, like Hermes stuff, Hesselschaft, right, like, um, uh, so, so the entire discipline from, uh, from the positivists, right, through Marx, Weber, Durkheim, um, emerged from this idea of thinking questions around this, the city. Mm. Right. And and then becomes like and from that related that in the spirit of the enlightenment, right? Like comes comes the split, like the duality, right? Like the mind over nature, mind over body, the distinction of, of the natural sciences and the social sciences, right? So um it is it is the the split is the split is part of the epistemological frameworks of the sciences themselves, right? Like 
the natural scientists are going to focus in the study of nature, right? And this is a nature with capital N, right? <laughs> like it's and 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 then that becomes like the field of the natural sciences, right? Biology, geology, ecology, etc. And then the social sciences are going to focus on people, on society, right? Like, uh, and as if we are also existing in the abstract. Um, and, and, and that original disciplinary split, right? Like has continued and I, and I see it, I mean, and I see it in the present in the ways in which we train our students and, and, and then how do we frame the problems and then how we frame the solutions and, and linking back to when you asked me earlier, like what are the questions that concern me is that something that I'm working currently on is into thinking into, okay, if, if we are to think about how do we approach a quote unquote solution, right? To, I mean, some people call the climate crisis a wicked problem. I don't like to think it like in those terms because wicked has a, a moral tone to it that um, I don't appreciate uh, because it isn't. I mean, there, it, it is the problem that we have to, that we have cre created as a society, right? That has both uh, natural or ecosystem and then society implications, right? So in order to address those issues, then we need to be thinking about a, a, a complexity of factors that if you're coming to study them from the perspective of your discipline, you're only seeing like a fraction of the problem, right? So ideally, and here's where the interdisciplinary collaborations come in, right? Like the interdisciplinary teams come in is that, well, everyone should be able to bring their own disciplinary insight and then somehow put the pieces of the puzzle together. But that, what I'm seeing is that that also doesn't work because as part of our disciplinary training, like if, if something has always been an absence in the ways in which you have been trained to think about the world, right? And here is where, well, if you as a sociology has, have never been trained to thinking about the environment or like how environmental factors um, or how we see that society is shaping, modifying, transforming the environment constantly and vice versa, right? Like in this dynamic, uh, if you've never been trained to think like that, how do you even engage in, like how do you, how do you unveil that assumption? That's something I have been thinking more and more um, and I don't have an answer. <laughs> well, I'm working on it, I'm working on it. Beautifully put as a dilemma and yes. Connects to your other preliminary remark, I guess, that had a big impact on me listening, which is, in a sense, the Leninist question, but not from a Leninist perspective, what is to be done? And I mm -hmm. think that relates to the question of the relationship between analysis and activism. Yeah. Which has been a dilemma in sociology from the early days. You mentioned the Chicago School. These yeah guys, mostly guys, who did these street-level ethnographies yeah. trying to understand the lived experience of inequality and difference. Wonderful, wonderful work. But that has a complex relationship to the attempts 
by sociology to be deemed a science, to have yes. the status of, if not a natural science, then at least the status of psychology or economics, and to try to differentiate itself from the impressionistic, subjective approach of the humanities, right? Put, put yes. So I guess my question for you is to ask, what is the role of activism in this? Is there one? Or is it better to go down the path of science and hence to have perhaps greater standing academically and also in terms of the formation and development of public policy? Yeah, so I 100% agree with the way in which you see the dilemma. But I think that the dilemma is fraught. I do think that the dilemma is fraught, and I think that 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 continues to create decisions, right? Like these fragmentations, mm-hmm. uh, which continue to again like create these silos, silos, which is the opposite of what we need to be doing. <laughs> um, so, I would say, first of all, I think that there is one big problem with this thinking that there is a science that is objective, right? That is seen, that is like in the ivory tower, like prescribing and very certainly is very much uh, appreciated like that, right? Uh, but I think it, 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 it has consequences. Uh, also because from that perspective, like from that top-down perspective, this quote-unquote, the science that is created many times is, um, Ascended, separated from the people who experience the problems, right? Because from my experience and 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 from and this is what I'm trying, why I'm trying to tease out what are the like the disciplinary assumptions. But but based on that assumption that there is something that is an objective science, it's it's hard then to understand that the communities that you're working on have knowledge, right? Um, so then what happens is that you develop your objective science from your objective, quote unquote, objective research. And then what you do is you impose solutions on others, which often don't work. I mean, that's the, there's a lot of research into the ways in which very well-meaning uh, scientists or, or NGO practitioners or policymakers, right, like craft their own science in their offices and then try to implement them and don't, those don't work. So I think that there needs to be some flexibility into uh, rethinking subjectivity, rethinking what you said. Um, are, are the strengths of the qualitative, interpretative hum- or, and, and, and the humanities, right? That, that, that they have the, the flexibility of interpretation, right? And that include others, and I'm going to think about communities, but also, I mean, even thinking about uh, more than human beings. And this is something that I'm thinking more, like how do we even consider like the agency of uh, uh, environmental actors, right? Which is something that other, other epistemologies invite us to think, like indigenous knowledges, for example, which is, Again, I'm trying, I'm, I am also trying to practice in my head because I wasn't trained like 
to think like that, but exists, right? So I'm trying to think it more. Now, thinking about this distinction between analyst, like the researcher as an, as an analyst, right? Or as a mind person and activism, um, I think that that is, um, those are like the two, um, like uh, further po points of a spectrum for two reasons. One is that, and this is also because, I mean, the, the way that I think about it, as I said earlier, I was trained in American sociology, but I was first trained as an Argentine sociologist. And in Argentina, the social scientists, I mean, particularly sociologists, uh, we all enter into sociology because there's something that we want to do about it. And, and sociology is political, and that is not questioned in the way that it is here in the United States, that in the United States, there's this category of the public intellectual, right? Like, or, or something like uh, public sociology, which is something that some sociologists do. Some sociologists who are interested in quote unquote change in the world or enacting in policy or working with the communities or doing activism, like call themselves public scholars or public sociologists. In Argentina, that doesn't exist. All sociologists are public. Like <laughs> that distinction is irrelevant. Um, so to me personally, the distinction is irrelevant. And the reason why I enter sociology is because we're here to do something about it. Now, how, like, that's the next question, but at least to, to shine light on problems and to engage in issues that people care about and that we care about and that people that we care care about. I mean, there's, there's an urgency in the things that I study and therefore um, there's a goal on research, right? Uh, that said, and this has happened to me in my work, um, is that the activists can be, and as I said, like, it's like the further end of the spectrum, right? Because I think that there's a role for activism, which is, which is uh, not separate, but like, again, like uh, further to the left, I would say, uh, to what is it that you can do. Now, that said, something that I have been thinking much more, and this is in relationship to the importance of sociology you know, becoming actually useful um, is, and, and more and more people are thinking about this and particularly environmental sociologists, people who are working on issues around environmental justice is the, the importance of, of making an ethical claim, right? Of like more and more people who are thinking about issues around justice. I mean, that is, that is a political statement and is, a, a, a desire, right? And it's a purpose that that um, that while I would certainly think that like the most like positive sociologists uh, would say, well, what are your claims to validity for issues like that? Like I'm of the type of I don't care about that question. <laughs> like I really don't care about. It. I mean, we I care about issues of justice because that's something that matters to me. And and having to prove that, like, why do we need to reduce inequality or why should we care about issues about sexism, racism? It's like, 
that's a waste of time. Like we care about those things. So therefore let's do something about it. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't, I, 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 I mean, to wrap up your question, I, I do think that there's a role for sociology as a, as, as a discipline and then as a science, right? Because we do have the methodological skills to, to understand the world, right? And make claims about processes and why the world works like it does and therefore what we can do, right? So those are part of the method, right? That, that gives us validity to present uh, potential solutions, right? Towards changing the world to get to to see the world that we want to see. So yeah. it's somewhere in the middle. Now, if that makes sense. At the beginning of your very eloquent and very profound answer, you said something that made me think about your book, Seeds of Power. So this mm. is where, where we do product placement. Okay. <laughs> and I ask you to talk <laughs> about it because you said something to the effect of that there's a problem when you have in a sense, sociological expertise, which is brought to bear on popular knowledge in order to find it partially wrong or partially right or inadequately expressed or whatever it might be. And one of the things that I see as a great strength of your, your brilliant book, Seeds of Power, is the way in which you can give us the political economy and the agrarian science of a situation, in this case, genetically modified uh, soy farming, and talk about the problems of capitalism and the problems of ecology, but also give real credence and a big voice to those in voces populares. We don't really have the right expression in English, but, you know, it's awful, but ordinary people's views. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whose lives livelihoods, physical environments are transformed as a consequence of this kind of agriculture and in many ways in, in, with an, a positive experience of that. So yeah. I, I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about Seeds of Power and how you, if I've put this correctly, how you navigate those different levels and forms of knowledge. Yes. Um, so... Seeds of Power is a book about environmental injustice, the environmental injustice that emerges around uh, genetically modified crops in Argentina. Argentina is the third largest grower of genetically modified crops, particularly soybeans, right? Uh, and the key about soy, genetically modified soybeans, for people who don't know what, what genetically modified crops, is that they have been modified to tolerate a particular herbicide called glyphosate that people may know because that's Roundup. Right. So what has been happening is that while Roundup is by itself less toxic than most herbicides that are being used, uh, the problem is that for Argentina and the United States and Brazil, which are the other two countries where genetically modified soybeans are grown in such a vast scale, is that the scale is massive. Uh, more than half of all arable land in Argentina is grown with soybeans. So and they're grown with soybeans, genetically modified soybeans and genetically modified corn uh, um, harvest after harvest. So uh, the impact is massive. Uh, the important thing about soybeans in, for Argentina is that those crops are meant for export, for export right? So it's a huge source for um, 
for uh, foreign income for the country. Now, how did I navigate the levels, right? And that's that that is part of the 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 story of the book, right? Like trying to distinguish what is the muscle scale, like uh, the the political and economic structure. Um, but but then the question to me was, okay, what is next, right? Uh, I am relying on environmental sociology to study this and development sociology, which tends to take a a huge like this like macro structural scale and and what is lost in those stories i mean and while it's important i do think that it's important to understand the 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 structural scale the global scale um, that doesn't tell us a lot about the people right like okay what's happening like how are these processes unfolding on the ground so as you said the the story of the book is one to understand uh uh, how and why soybeans like um, have become so prevalent in Argentina, right? Like, what has happened that that soybean producers, that farmers, have become so um, um, attached to, so uh, so um, eager to adopt what at that time was a new technology. Argentina was the first, one of the first six countries in the world to adopt a technology that had zero testing and continued to have very little testing. Um, and the, the interesting question for Argentina is that um, contrary to what has been happening in other countries of the global south, well, actually in Europe too, I mean, actually most of the world, is that there have been huge protests against genetically modified crops, or at least there has been huge doubt and like a lot of um, um, like um, caution in a, like acceptance, both by the scientific community and by the farming community. Argentina like jumped on board and like started planting millions and millions of, of hectares like right away and it has been growing year after year. So my question, uh, my the questions around the book are related to on the one side, why is it that farmers are so eager to adopt the new technologies? And two, what happens to the people who are exposed to the consequences, right? Uh, because people are, I, I, I mean, you call them uh, los grupos populares, like, right? Um, in, in the book, I call them the people in between, because these are people who are both, uh, like, classically in environmental, in, in the literature, environmental justice, right? We talk about people at the top, right? Like people who have power to decide and people who benefit, right? And then we also talk about the people who are bear the burden, of environmental injustice, so who, those who uh, suffer toxicity, risk, um, and don't receive any benefits. What I, I talk about are what I call the people in between, because these are people who receive some benefits, but these are the farming communities who do receive some uh, economic, and all, but also cultural benefits related to the expansion of uh, uh, the, the, the planting of soybeans. Uh, but also suffer the costs, right? Particularly being exposed to the fumigations, and 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 through 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 that investigation, right? Like trying to understand what is it that these regular people? How is it that regular people deal, deal with toxicity? Um, um, I learned a lot. I learned. I I think that 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 I was able to tell tell a much more human story than if I would just focused on the structure or the technology or even just on the on the on the 
movements of people who are protesting against. Because while certainly uh, elevating and centering their stories is extremely important, we know, as sociologists, we know much more about the movements, the people who do protest, than from the people who stay silent. Um, so I think that the book like makes an, a small contribution, at least, uh, into trying to understand the the gray of everyday no, life. I, I think, think that's right. And I think there's a relationship, a structural homology between that and one of the dilemmas, the popular dilemmas in Argentina, as I understand them, that you lay out, I think, early in the book, which is people in Argentina saying, well, a century ago, we had the same gross domestic product as Australia. Mm-hmm. What the heck happened? Why do they have wealth, minimal inequality with the notable exception of indigenous people and they can they lay claim to be both european and asian we thought we were european and look what's happened to us right have you have you heard uh the the first discourses by javier Millet when he assumed the presidency it's exactly the same discourses that i present in the book like the claim he's making exactly the same claims the claims of what I'm going to do as a president is bring us back from the decadence. Like this word, like decadence to me, like keep resonating. Like he keeps talking about the decadence we have been ever since. And we're going to make us potencia again, like uh, the granary of the world, like a powerful. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to bring us back to when we were the granary of the world. So he's using again, uh, the same imaginaries of the nation that uh, that are very much part of how Soviet producers have been saying, see, seeing the world ever since, um, but very much aligned with a particular, um, I wouldn't say like a group of people, but like a category of people, right? Argentina has always been in, as I say in the book, in this um, dichotomy, the civilization versus barbarism dichotomy, right? Like that the Peronistas have uh, used to, so we're always back and forth, right? Like and and Millet is now bringing it back. Like what we need to do is more agro-industry, more like industrialize the countryside so that we can become like in the decadence and become part of the top nations of the world. He's selling everything. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like he's changing the, uh, the laws that protect agriculture, that protect land. Um, he um, uh, shut down, well, he didn't shut it down, but uh, the Ministry of the Environment now is a subsecretary. Um, so so all all the regulations and mechanisms that were there to, to um, protect uh, people and nature are taken away and, and very quickly. I mean, like overnight. His vice president is a daughter of the dictatorship. Yeah. And an apologist for mm-hmm. the dictatorship. Yes, yes. I mean, this is something I thought I would never see, except now that I live in Spain, I've realized that the civil war here never ended, just as the civil war in the US never ended. Never ended, yeah. But here, unlike in the US, there are quite a lot of people who were actually alive during the civil war, and of course, many more who were tortured or torturing during mm-hmm. the dictatorship in the four decades afterwards. And so 
I see mass movements, hundreds of thousands of people marching up and down my street in the name of a fascist imaginary. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah, it frightens me when we mm-hmm. see these administrations that they're not really, I shouldn't even say she's an apologist for the dictatorship. She's a celebrant. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Millet the same. And it's it's really interesting. As you mm-hmm. know, one of the questions I always ask Argentines such as yourself is, so what is peronismo? Always <laughs> <laughs> give me an answer. And then there'll be another Argentine at the other end of the table saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. It's like this or it's like that. But what's interesting in, in, is that, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. In in when I took politics of Latin America in my um, graduate level in the class in graduate school, and we were a bunch of Latin American people from Latin America, but also some Americans, and I was someone like turned around and was like, "Oh, professor, what is Peronism?" And but the interesting thing was that we had a guest speaker that day who was his name was Vila. I'm sorry, I cannot say exactly what he was doing, but he did work for the Kirchner. Like he was a scholar, but had also had uh, political experience. And his response, which always stuck to me, is like he said, Peronism is a political machine, right? It is the only party who has, um, who who is able to gather uh, uh, votes from across the country, right? which is something that until Macri and certainly until Millet, no one had been able to do. So what Millet did has like upset all, anything that the politologos um, have been able to understand because he's someone that didn't have the political machine, right? Like wasn't able to, didn't have like the punteros, the clientelists and, and, and all, all representatives across the country. Like he has very little governance now. Um, and yet he was able to pull the presidency. Now, the problem now is because he doesn't have the sustain, how will he be able to pull it through, which is something that he's realizing now. And of course, one element in this is that there is some popular resistance. It's not just yeah. the what probably was terrible corruption of the Kirchner. Although, as you know, for many years, my heart was open to Christina, but <laughs> never answered my in there. Uh, what probably was the terrible corruption of the Kirchner mm-hmm. and their cohort? And what were the continued lies of the government about the state of the economy? Those are real issues. But there are also serious leftist peronistas and leftists in general and workers and I suppose environmentalists who can see what this guy is trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Resisting it already, right? Yeah, yeah. There are lots of protests already. Um, already. I mean, there are lots of protests all the time because the, the, on, it was the next day or the next, the day after he assumed presidency, he put a, Decreto, I don't know how you say, like a national decree, decree of, uh, of urgency, like necessary urgency, like this idea that I'm going to pass all these measures without any executive <laughs> state of emergency. Yeah. In the state of, yes, exactly, thank you. And um, 
I mean, he had like 300 points. And if he just, I mean, again, this is like we're reliving history, like calling it shock doctrine, like shock measures, structural adjustments. And so people are protesting. The thing is that there are so many fronts to it, <laughs> right? So labor is involved, the sciences are taking some, the environmentalists are doing some. It's just, it's so massive the amount of change that he's bringing forward. Yeah. That, um, that I imagine that some will pass because they won't be able to to stop it all. Um, I, I've heard some, um, I mean, and the people that I follow on Twitter and my colleagues, some say that it is quite like, I mean, it is possible that the level of like everyday resistance is so intense that he might, that Millet might not be able to complete his term. Uh, because everything will get stopped. Um, we'll see. And, and of course, we'll we see. also have to bear in mind the evil empire to the north <laughs> and what the attitude of the United States will be. I mean, back in the Cold War, the Carter administration, regarded now as a liberal beacon, was, of course, happy to do absolutely nothing about the dictatorships in Chile and Argentina. And who knows what the Biden people or others will want to see out of this. Yeah. Right? Their, their main concern is always what they think of as instability. And yes. that can imply for U.S. business interests. Right? Yes. Uh, I do want to put a, make the point that this is not a dictatorship, that something that has been actually an amazing sign for Argentina is that even through this devastating economic crisis that we're living, we had peaceful elections and yeah. we had the president passing on the baton to the, well, actually it was Christina, it was the vice president, right? But there was a peaceful transfer of power, people like which didn't happen in the United States with Trump and didn't even happen with Christina and Macri the time before, right? Like they said, I'm not accepting the results and I'm leaving before saying anything. So, so this time there was a peaceful transfer of power. Both like outgoing and incoming president met to talk, um, which is it's huge. Like as an Argentine, uh, it's huge to see, particularly seeing again like what has been happening here in the United States and across the world, right? Like this not accepting who's coming next. So that's huge. Yeah. The other important thing to to highlight is that Millet won with about 12% difference from the second person. So even, so he has a lot of support. He has a lot of support. The reasons for the support are varied. Uh, and some people now are probably realizing, oh fuck, but they voted for him. He had a huge support. and. And it's also important to say that Argentina needs to change. I mean, this is not the change that I would have preferred, but something needed to change. Something needed to change. And something what, needed to what change. What was interesting to me as an outsider and yeah. not an expert is that that support flocked to him in the second round of the yes. election. So many commentators were saying after the first round that he might not win. Yeah. That his first round performance was not as successful as expected. But then there was a flood of support that really went to him. 
in the second yeah. inclusive round. So I absolutely take your point. The issue then becomes, though, whether or not so-called structural adjustment can yeah. occur without profound repression. Yes, and this is the other part. That this is something that is already happening. Right? They're changing lots of laws uh, that, that people are protesting, right? Like how many people like, can congregate on the streets? Uh, are, we're going to take away your, um, your plans, like your um, social benefits if you come and protest. So yes, I mean, the repression is going to happen. And, and, and I, I, I don't like to say the word I predict, because I, but, but I foresee that uh, once that, that the protest around extractivist sites, so around environmental destruction, like around the mines, around the dams, um, are going to become more violent too, uh, because the level of repression is going to get higher because Millet's government approaches protect private property at all costs. Yeah. Yes, it's that Lockean American tradition mm -hmm. that is meant yeah. to be the heart of democracy. So yeah. we're almost at the end of our time together. I'd like to ask mm -hmm. you two more questions, if I may, Prof Amalia, and <laughs> then throw to you to give you the opportunity to add anything that we haven't mentioned that you'd like to. Okay. Sound okay? Sure. So the first of my last two questions, and as you can see, but listeners can't, I'm dealing with a slightly mad cat at the moment <laughs> who is being... <laughs> reasonably calm he was mm -hmm. a basque uh, militant a militante in in espanol which isn't really the same as militant in english it would be more activist so his, his basque name is actually chinguri chinguri uh, okay chinguri and chinguri <laughs> uh, <laughs> means hormiga <laughs> okay <laughs> which is a slightly mad name for a cat i think we could all agree so he's been chinguri sweet He's been, yeah, Chinguri significa hormiga, which means ant. And he's been renamed by my younger daughter, Naranja, because of his color, orange. Uh -huh. But he's becoming more and more vainilla as he gets a little bit older. <laughs> anyway, he is here. And so right now he's being a little calmer. He was very feisty when we began. However, my first question <laughs> to you, Prof. Leguizamon, uh, uh, is to ask you how you manage to do the incredibly rich field work that you do. Because one oh, of the things so. I think in your book is very important is gender. But yeah. there are these moments in the book where it feels as though you sit down with the women of the family around the kitchen table. And that's when you get, in inverted commas, the real story. Mm -hmm. That's my version of things. Yeah. So how do you go about getting that access and that trust? Uh, yes, and thank you for that question. Could I get it, yeah. a guy, a white guy not from Argentina? Could I get into that kitchen table discussion with those women? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, but I think that that's the beauty of of 
I think that that's the beauty of what each individual researcher brings in. And I think this speaks to uh, our discussion before about objectivity and subjectivity is that we are always talking from some perspective and we're always coming into the field with some perspective. And the way in which people react to us is the way responds also to the ways that they see us or they perceive us or what they think about us. So um, I, my, my work and particularly for the book comes from, I mean, a classical qualitative perspective of uh, doing interviews, but also doing some participant observation. The interesting thing that happened though, and this is the part of also the beauty of uh, qualitative work, like the inductive part of it, like the things that you're not expecting are going to happen, is that I enter the field having questions around the adoption of the technologies, right? Like why is it that farmers adopt the technology of genetically modified crops? That um, to me, without thinking about it, was, was in the first place a very gender question because the ones, the people who are in charge of those decisions of deciding what to grow and how to do it are men in Argentina, right? They're uh, millionaire per class men of European descent. So it's a gender class, it's a gender issue and it's a race issue, right? And, and I took those completely for granted uh, because that's what it is. Now, um, as, as I was going about doing my research, research and spending more and more time in the field, right, in the farms, what I realized is that, which is also something that I haven't thought about, is that I was the gender person for them too, because I was suddenly the only woman in asking interviews, um, uh, like doing these interviews to all these men, which is something that I didn't consider, but while being in the field, right, like we, we've been in the countryside in Argentina, there was it's certainly an in and out. Even though I was there all the time, there was certainly an in and out in the terms of, okay, I'm going to go to the farm or to the or to the company, like the agribusiness companies that makes decisions, for example, right? Like financial decisions, et cetera, et cetera. And and then the women will leave, right? Like they would say, like, okay, like now you go do your work and then I will come back. And then, but in the downtime, I was not hanging out with men because our rural society in Argentina continues to be very traditional, right? Like heterosexual, the women are, uh, the men are the breadwinner and go out to work, the women are the caretaker, right? So I was, I was in the downtime, spending a lot of time with women taking care of children. And, and for a long time, for me, that wasn't part of my research. That was, the interesting thing. So I wasn't taking notes about it until they started talking about the ways in which they were worried about the fumigations. And that's when I saw that something was happening, right? That pertained to my field work, that pertained to my research, that pertained to my question around uh, genetically modified crops, that even though the women for a long time have told me, you don't talk to me because and now I would say I'm not talking to you because you're not deciding, right? You were also very much part of the story. Um, but it, it wasn't, I mean, I know that now, because I learned from that experience, that's something that I do, like try to pay more attention to actually everything that is happening. Uh, the first time that I did it, 
it really very much took me by surprise. And I write about that in the book. You do, and it's wonderful work. And <laughs> it reminds me of, in a sense, a reverse motion, which is Laura Nader in the 70s saying to anthropologists, we should study up. So in her okay. case, saying, well, anthropology, as you know, as you imply in your opening remarks today, is about studying or was traditional societies and sociology about studying again, in inverted commas, modern societies. And those categories always problematic have changed significantly. But one of the things that Laura Nader was getting at over 50 years ago was that one should understand the ethnography of the wealthy and the powerful as well as the poor and the powerless. What you did was to enrich your study of the wealthy and the powerful and learning from people working in the informal sector, if you like, uh, women doing care work basically without wages, right? And you came to see through their comments on environmental issues that they were important to your understanding of the phenomenon of the wealthy and the powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for that wonderful answer. So my last question which sounds a little bit like a job interview question, so I apologize. Uh-huh. It's not meant to be. <laughs> Professor Leguizamon, <laughs> your next project. Um, yeah, so I'm now working on developing something that emerges from um, a quote-unquote failure. So I'm trying to also rethink uh, what failures look like and and like the regenerative potential of disaster, I would say. Uh, so I was part of um, a research collaboration with conservation ecologists as part of this thinking about solutions about climate change, which didn't work. It didn't work at all. Um, so it was bastante bien. It was quite traumatic and difficult because there are also relationships between people and the time that I, I dedicated, and I'm sure they also dedicated towards uh, developing a new research project that then uh, was terminated. Um, but I have been uh, working more and more in trying to think into, okay, what what grows from it? Like what comes out of that? And out of that, I have, I have been thinking, as I said earlier, in the beginning, in thinking about um, uh, broadly into... Uh, on 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 the one side like what makes or breaks a research collaboration like particularly related to climate change right so i'm thinking more and more into okay how do i am what i I want to be able to understand like where the people come from like related to their epistemological frameworks right uh as as to understand how then we might be able to come together as researchers coming from both the natural sciences and the social sciences to to do uh, a transdisciplinarity that flourishes. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm thinking about uh, developing a framework for interdisciplinarity to flourish. Um, so that's something that I'm I'm thinking of. I'm I'm working on. Um, I'm I'm coming up with a research design to 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 meet the researchers. So I want to 
to to do research about the researchers. So I want to to meet the people who are doing this kind of work and seeing uh, try to see what work and what does doesn't for them, like to try to tease that out because uh, as I said earlier, um, there's a lot of emphasis and money being put from the universities, the donors, the um, organizations like NSF, NIH to say like, oh, you go do your interdisciplinarity project, right? And then teams get pulled together, but we are supposed to be able to know how to do it without fully understanding how. Um, so I want to think about the previous step. That's one thing. And the other thing that I'm working on um, is our, uh, and this is in relationship to how do we approach solutions? Is that something that I saw in my experience and I'm seeing other people are seeing this in their experiences too, is that um, the solutions are, the quote unquote solutions to climate change, many solutions to climate change as they are being implemented are very much top down from the global north to the global south, right? So, so um, uh, Northern or American uh, um, NGOs, experts, right? Like come to countries like Argentina, like Brazil, like Ecuador, like all these places to, to tell the people, okay, this is what you need. You need decarbonization, you need conservation, you need a protected area, uh, you need electric bikes, right? You need a dam here, right? Uh, which are issues that more and more people are starting to think are, as issues of climate coloniality, right? So how do we see the colonial legacies? Of, how do we see colonial legacies, particularly of the ways in which we uh, engage with the world? Uh, in the present of uh, climate emergency, right? Uh, so who are the ones who present solutions, right? And have the money to um, to affect, like make the solutions possible compared to the people who uh, bear the burden, right? And, and are also not being listened to into what those people need. So those are issues around climate coloniality that I'm seeing a lot about in Latin America. Um, and that's something I'm like writing about right now. So they, they are, to me, they seem like two different little projects, but actually are about, I mean, I'm seeing these things conversing around like um, what is the role of higher education, right? Like as, as um, the people who also train the future of the discipline, right? In, in yeah, in, I don't know, I'd like rethinking how we do our work too. Beautiful. Wow. Two great projects. And as you see, as you say, rather, I can envisage a lot of overlap. Well, Amalia, thank you so much. I've learned an immense amount in the last hour. I'm incredibly grateful to you. And I'm sure that our listeners will feel the same way. Thank you so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Thank you for getting me thinking once again. <laughs>